folks, and welcome to the Sense and Theory podcast, where we cut through the bias and extremism to find common ground that might bring us together. I'm Sense. And I'm Theory. And today we're going to take a look at another one of those issues that has a tendency to divide us neatly along party lines, and that's regulation. Mm-hmm. Now, if we ask Democrats, there is no problem on the face of the planet that 46 regulations can't fix. Regulatory agencies are our last beacon of hope preventing our corporate overlords from killing us all and using our bones to build their skyscrapers. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, Republicans seem to believe that there isn't a problem in the world deregulation can't fix. Regulatory agencies are the only thing preventing Jesus from coming back in the form of Fortune 500 companies and igniting an era of abundance that'll make the loaves and the fishes look like a midnight snack. Shockingly, Neither of those two views that I just exaggerated, but way less than you want to admit, are true. That's right. And and to me, regulation is a tool. It's nothing more, nothing less. Sometimes those regulations serve us, and other times those regulations hold us back. So while there are plenty of good faith arguments to be had about you know where our regulatory touch should be a tickle or a slap, there's one aspect of regulation that we all seem to recognize, but we rarely talk about. So today, we're going to take a look at not only regulation itself, but what happens when our regulation policies are used not to serve the public, but to enrich the select few. Yeah, that's right. I think before we do that, though, we have to address that it's kind of the elephant in the room on this subject, and it's those cartoonish views of regulation to begin with. So that's right. I say, here, let's, let's, let's start at deregulation. I'm the guy that leans right, right? So I'll, <laughs> I'll kick this off. My personal inclination towards deregulation is, is, is born of that aversion to central authority that we've discussed before. Yeah, I have that same aversion, actually. Yeah, I don't like the government stepping in and telling me what I can and can't do. And also, I have reservations to begin with, with like a central government effectively and efficiently trying to legislate and make rules for the just myriad of ways that you know our society operates and functions. Right, so. expecting our, our legislators to understand the complexities of these businesses a lot of times is kind of absurd. Right, right. All that said, though, what's the alternative, right? Like, I, I the alternative is anarchy and survival of the fittest. And to me, for society to function, you have to have some sort of arbiter that is going to balance competing interests and, and kind of, you know, weigh the, the cons and the merits of each side's argument and, you know, kind of try to find the correct way to go. Um, I think the idea that absent regulation, every industry and every actor out there will self-regulate, you know, some people say for altruistic reasons or, you know, self-interest, it's, it's, it's silly to me. Yeah, I agree. Uh, everyone games the system. My grandma has gamed the system. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, that's, people will take every shortcut they possibly can. And I think in a, in a capitalist society, um, there's no such thing as self-regulation. I mean, corporations are created with the sole purpose uh, to profit. And it's why the rich take advantage of every tax loophole they can find. Um, the idea that some corporation will voluntarily give a you know paid family medical lead, leave is is kind of a joke. I mean, I, there is an idea that like one company may offer paid family leave mm-hmm. uh, to be competitive and and gain some uh, employees, and yeah. that then maybe all of them will be forced to. But that's just not the way it works. People need the jobs. They're going to get the jobs, well, even if those things aren't in place. You're talking about like, so the second big argument for deregulation, right, is that the market will correct, right? Exactly. The market, you know, let me tell you something, man. I, I believe in the market. 
You know, I, I think that the market is something that we overlook sometimes. I think that it represents the sum total of knowledge of like millions of transactions between people and like to, to ignore like what the market's telling you, it, you do so at your own risk. At the same time, Mitch McConnell has been going to Washington and been elected for what, three decades. Where's the market correction the, there? <laughs> yeah, dude, the market can be subverted, you know, whether through uh, you know, advertisement or just, you know, things that are benign, like, you know, just not having people be aware of the ins and outs and, you know, specifics of like a certain thing. Like, I don't, I don't know shit about, uh, underwater drilling. Right. You know what I mean? So like, how is the American populace going to make an informed decision about underwater drilling? Right. You have to have somebody that's going to kind of weigh the pros and the cons and be the arbiter. Right. And ideally I think we'd have, uh, you know, some people who were, who were smart and listening to the experts and tapped into the experts. But as we're going to talk about later, sometimes that kind of uh, gets yeah. flipped upside down as well. No, that can go, that can go awry. But the fact that it does go awry doesn't mean that deregulation is necessarily the answer. I think, I think we could have more deregulation. I mean, to tell you, I want as much Liberty as we can safely and practically have in our personal lives and the operation of businesses across the board. But there are things like greed, discrimination, uh, ineptitude, dishonesty, all those things demand that we take some steps to protect ourselves. Yeah, I tend to agree. You hit the nail on the head there. Those are the things that uh, we definitely have to protect ourselves from. And and we use government to do that. You know, it's not something we can individually protect ourselves from. These things are institutionalized and, and people will be greedy. You know, like I said before, if there's a tax loophole, uh, a corporation is going to take advantage of it because that's their job. We require corporations to have the sole uh, objective of making money. Yeah. Um, so there are things we need to do to kind of rein in uh, the negative excesses. No, I agree. So I, I think, you know, that firmly puts to bed the idea that deregulation is just going to solve everything. Like I said, I think there are places, but, you know, we need regulation. Now, having said that we need regulation, let's talk about regulation because I would ask, <laughs> What have the slew of regulations and regulatory agencies, what good have they done for the good people of Flint that we talked about last week, right? Um, In that episode with the Flint water crisis, we talked about how the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality and the EPA both said that the reasons they screwed up were ambiguous laws and regulations. They didn't really understand what their responsibilities were or how much of this should be used here and all that stuff. So I, you know, I mean, you, you can say, well, it's their job. They're supposed to know it. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it absolves them of guilt. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's but, an excuse for them, but it can still be true at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, that, and that absolutely doesn't make the case that we should have full deregulation. It right. just means that there's a gray area and there's a scale and we go too far this way, things mess up. Right. And when we go too far the other way, things mess up. So it's one of these weird places where, where we have to have nuance and we have to have complexity and we have to have gray area. But I think both sides very much act like it's a hard line in the sand. You yeah. know, on one side, you deregulate. On mm-hmm. the other side, we regulate to protect people. Yeah. And, and in that shuffle and in that head-to-head boom, 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 we lose the ability to get nuanced and we lose right. the ability to be complex because we've, we've signed up to the team who has one or the other thought. And now, in order to play along, we've got to play one of those sides. Yeah, I, I think I think some of us, at least, refuse to accept the idea 
that you can get just as carried away regulating as you can in deregulating, right? Consider for a second, uh, uh, I have a piece here from The Economist on the Dodd-Frank law. That's the 2010 law that aims to prevent another financial crisis like the one that befell us in 2008, right? And uh, writing in 2012, The Economist said, its aim was noble to prevent another financial crisis. Its strategy was sensible to improve transparency, stop banks from taking excessive risks, prevent abusive financial practices, and end, quote unquote, too big to fail by authorizing regulators to seize any big tottering financial firm and wind it down. This newspaper supported these goals at that time, and we still do. But Dodd-Frank is far too complex, and becoming more so. At 848 pages, it is 23 times longer than the Glass-Steagall Act, uh, the reform that followed the Wall Street crash of 1929. Worse, every other page demands that regulators fill in further details. Some of these clarifications are hundreds of pages long. Just one bit, the Volcker Rule which aims to curb risky proprietary trading by banks, includes 383 questions that break down into 1,420 sub-questions. The people, uh, you know, they go on to say that of the 400 rules it mandates, only 93 have been finalized. So financial firms in America must prepare to comply with a law that is partly unintelligible and partly unknowable. And, you know, that 93 out of 400, that's two years later. Yeah. The law's been there for two years, and only 93 of the 400 laws have been finalized. And it, and it's funny because part of this speaks to the complexity of issues, right? I mean, you want to address the complexity of the reality. So so at some point, especially when we're talking about the financial world, uh, complexity is, is a necessary evil. Right. At the same time... I think people ought to ex- ought to understand the laws. Mm-hmm. Um, I think our legislators ought to understand the laws they're voting on. And when you're asking legislators to understand, you know, fourteen hundred pages, right? You know, maybe that's too far. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Know? And maybe we're in an area where you can't do both. Um, I don't know. I don't think so. I think we're going to talk about some things today where it's obvious we can do both. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. We can we can address the complexity without uh, without going too far. Yeah. Um, but it's it's one of those things we've got to balance. And again, we can't do that right now. Well, I, I think what it is is it's straight up getting carried away, right? Like you said, the financial world is a very complex interlocking of parts and pieces and stuff. And I think that the problem is, is that people want to try to legislate or form a rule or regulation for every eventuality. And, and you just can't do it. You'll never be able to do it. There, there's no discussion to be had there, in my opinion. You go for the big things. You go for the broad strokes. You do the best you can, limit things as they come up and stuff. But to sit there and say, we're going to predict every manner in which the financial world is going to try to get one over on us. Good luck, man. Right. You know what I mean? And, and a lot of times when you try to do that, you end up with unintended consequences. So consider the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. Okay. This act was intended to prevent major corporate accounting fraud like we had with Enron and the WorldCom. And this came very much as a result of the Enron scandal. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, that's it. Enron and WorldCom happened and this was passed. It was like within the same year, I think it was 2002, 2003. Um, They had noble intentions. There's no doubt about that. And plenty of good, I think, has come of this law. A lot of financial experts, a lot of economists say that a lot of good things came out of this law. But in the wake of its passage, a Small Business Administration study found that the regulations added a cost of 10000 
$585 per employee to comply to a business's operating cost. So I understand some people's initial reactions might be, well, you know, that company can eat a cost like that. I mean, you know, 10585 multiplied by, you know, what is that, $5 million? Well, they can if they uh, forego raises for the next three years. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it gets, it gets deeper than that because right after that law passed, we lost our, our position as the world leader in uh, IPOs, initial public offerings. On Which the was market. directly... Which is what what the Sarbanes Oxley Act addressed, right? I mean, no, 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 it did, no, it did not. It, 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 in a sense, you know, an IPO, in a sense, yes, there has to be documentation around uh, reporting, but an IPO is when you make yourself a publicly traded company right. on a stock market, and because of that rising cost of business, all of a sudden we see that businesses are like, well, I'll just go file my IPO in Hong Kong and I don't have to pay $10,585 per employee. Hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? Like when you pass laws that make it harder for people to do stuff. Now, granted, you've got this regulation in place and it does good things, but that generates paperwork that generates compliance officers that generates a whole bureaucracy unto itself. And the company can look at that and say, Nah, I'm just not going to pay That's it. That's not for me, man. Yeah, I'm just going to go. England doesn't do that. I'm going to go to England. Yeah. You know what I mean? So you can sit there and pat yourself on the back and say, hey, we've done this good, but not if the companies aren't here, you know? So it's not like you're saying that the Sarbanes-Oxley Act was unnecessary, but uh, sometimes in the fervor and rush to get something done, we we may overlook unintended consequences. Right. Um, and sometimes they actually lead us to like really silly Really silly places. Like one example I can think of are homeowners associations. Um, You know, in in the in the country, the land of the free, the country of freedom. If you move into a neighborhood that has a homeowners association, eh, you may not be able to paint your house the color you want. In fact, I mean, you've got the cases like the autistic kid. Uh, you know, his his pops built him a playground in the, in the backyard and the homeowners association fights him with the full strength of their you know team of attorneys yeah. uh, to make him take this playground down. And things like that are just they're absolutely absurd to me. You know, Grandma Jean can't paint her house teal yeah. because the homeowners association has has such strong pull. And I think a lot of times those things are born out of good intentions so, you know, as a homeowner, I don't want my neighbor to be able to devalue my property by building some huge, ugly, you know, hunk of a shed built out of pallets. That is <laughs> that is some of it. Yes. Some of it, I think, is just good old fashioned power trips. Mm. You know, it's just, well, I'm not going to have a teal house in my neighborhood. Right. You know what I mean? Has nothing to do with property values and stuff like that. And I, I don't know, man. Like, what is the the why is that OK? You know, to even begin with, think about it, you know, well, he's, he's going to devalue my property and stuff. So sell it and move if you're that worried about it. You know what I mean? Like you live <laughs> That's in the a, market correcting. This, this is a free country, man. Like you can do what you want to with your patch of grass. I can do what I want to with my patch. I can't tell you how much I hate home, homeowners. Dude, you wanna, one, I have a great loathing. Very soon we are going to do an episode about the San Francisco housing crisis. Mm. And we can talk about regulations and homeowners associations all you want to, man. That uh, there are so many regulations for housing in San Francisco that it's, it's reached a full on crisis level, man. People can't find a place to live. And what's insane about it is all sorts of people would love to build housing in San Francisco, but you have these homeowners associations and these regulations that they've gotten passed that say you can't have a building over 40 feet. 
you can't have a building with this much density. It's got to have parking like that. It's got to have that like that. Right. And so, so as people flow into San Francisco by the thousands, uh-huh. obviously you need more housing while you've got all of these people fighting uh, to keep that housing from being built. Right. So you're in a situation. Well, what do we do? Yeah, no. And what ends up happening is, you know, it, you think about it. San Francisco has been and you know, that that includes Berkeley has been democratically controlled for years. And here we see the people who need affordable housing, the people in the lowest incomes, completely unable to find a place to live in. in yeah, in what was San it? Francisco. The medium, the median uh, rent for a one bedroom in San Francisco, seventeen hundred dollars or yeah, something ridiculous. Seventeen hundred dollars. Seventeen hundred dollars a month, while the median income is like forty four thousand. Yeah, of course. Now we're talking about California, and let me tell you, in in the course of getting ready for this show. I found a California law that makes it a crime to sell onion rings resembling normal onion rings, but made from diced onions without saying so. Now, those are the real hard-hitting <laughs> legislations that I'm glad we have got people in charge Thank of. God, that's Because I books. can't imagine going to Kroger and seeing <laughs> onion rings on the shelf and getting home and... Oh my God, these are made of diced onions. Oh man. Would, How dare they? I'd be furious. And the other good thing too is it's it's putting people to work. Because now, thankfully, there's somebody who has to go around and check these onion rings. <laughs> I would say it's 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 killing jobs because now there's no one dicing the onions. No. Because <laughs> God forbid I'm not gonna buy onion rings that say they're made of diced onions. You would have to trick me to get me to buy those onion I would, rings. I would also like to mention that I was also hip to the the fascinating world of going out of business sales. Ah. So it turns out, uh, unbeknownst to me, all across the country, there are laws in place that you have to buy a license to have a going out of business <laughs> Can you sale. imagine? Talk about hitting the poor <laughs> yeah. where it hurts. Like, Dude, my business is failing. I have yeah. to go out of business. Now I must apply and pay for a license yeah. to do so, oh, to no, advertise it, my sale. It gets more complicated <laughs> than that. In the city of Milwaukee, to get the license to do the going out of business sale, you have to have CPA certified paperwork that lists <laughs> all your inventory, right? <laughs> and then in addition to the license cost, you have to pay $2 for every $1,000 of inventory that you want to sell. Up front. Yeah. Before you even sell it. <laughs> yeah. You might man. not sell it. Exactly. You got to pay for it. I mean, what, what I, I saw it referred to as a failure tax. It's like, well, <laughs> well, you failed, man. So you got to pay. Pay the man. You know? Oh, my it's, God. No, it gets ridiculous. And that's to say, you know, so, so we're talking about, you know, crazy, crazy laws that don't service. But, you know, I think especially like when you look at Dodd-Frank or Sarbanes-Oxley, you know, there were good intentions there. I think, you know, maybe less so with the Dystonians, but, you know, <laughs> but, but generally, you know, the regulations, the good intentions just didn't work out. But what happens when the wrong people get in charge of making the regulation, mm. right? And at that point, we're talking about something called regulatory capture. That's right. And, and regulatory capture is a form of government failure, which occurs when a regulatory agency created to act in the public interest instead advances the commercial or political concerns of special interest groups that tend to dominate the industry uh, that it's actually in charge of regulating. Right. Uh, you know, the thing is, is that the outcome of regulatory capture does not necessarily have to be regulation. It can just as well manifest itself as deregulation. And for evidence, if you look at the, uh, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management Regulation and Enforcement, uh, look at their actions regarding offshore drilling 
in the lead up to the Deepwater Horizon spill, you will see that they were very much creating regulations or not, uh, you know, putting or fighting against regulations pretty much on behalf of BP, hmm. pretty much on behalf of the, you know, the underwater drilling corporations. Right. So, you know, just because the, the traditional idea in the 70s behind regulatory capture was that industries would influence regulators to keep out new competitors. Sure. And that that very much so happens, and we see that. But we also see nowadays that they will also just say, well, hey, deregulate, baby. Let us do what we got to do. And, and you know, I think in the era of Trump, we see that we see that really big time. Yeah, going no, on. absolutely. I mean, you, you instantly you start to picture corruption and everything. But I think it's important for us to note that corruption does not have to be present for regulatory capture to occur. Uh, there's an economist from the University of Chicago, Luis Zingales, who wrote, uh, regulators depend Mount upon. Up. <laughs> I've been waiting for that one. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got me. Uh, regulators depend upon the regulated for much of the information they need to do their job properly. This dependency creates a need to cater to the information providers. The regulated are also the only real audience of the regulators, since taxpayers have all the incentives to remain ignorant. Hence, the regulators' on-the-job performance will be naturally defined with the regulated in mind pushing the regulators to cater to the interest of the regulated. And that's, that is a lot of uses of the word regulated, but basically what <laughs> my man's saying is it's a filter bubble, man. If ever there was one, like who are you going to ask about deep sea drilling? Well, Obviously deep sea drilling experts. Exactly. And where do they work? Deep sea drilling companies. <laughs> Bingo, man. And I mean, it, it's, it's true across the board. Say you want to regulate cheese production. You've got a few university agriculture programs that do like some large scale cheese production. But if you need data on big cheese production, you're going to go to big cheese producers. And, and it makes sense because you can't expect anyone to be, you know, an expert on big cheese right. unless they've worked with big cheese. And the, we're talking like huge wheels. Yeah. Well, we're, and then like we're the, talking like nine foot long wheels, wheels that could be on big earth movers. We're talking of cheese. We're also talking about the big cheese of the big cheese, you the know? big cheese, of the big cheese. <laughs> but no, so that data, you know, the data that you get from the big cheese producer is obviously going to have bias in it as to, you know, well, this is what we have to have because it's what works for us. Right. And if you're the regulator sitting there, that's where your data is coming from. That's all you have to decide how to apply this law that Congress has enacted. You know, that's right. And and I think a place where that kind of overlaps with this um, is lobbying. Right. right. Because in, in much the same ways, you've got lobbyists that have previously worked for companies or are, you know, working directly on behalf of companies uh, lobbying for laws uh, for their industry. Mm hmm. Uh, well, uh, Luis Zingales also hit that on the head. He said, uh, you know, career incentives play a big role. The regulators, human capital is highly industry specific and the best job for people holding that specific human capital are with the regulated. Hence the desire to prefer future career or preserve future career options makes it difficult for the regulator not to cater to the regulator. And uh, Zingale sees a little dense there with all his regulators <laughs> yeah. regulated. So for those of us that speak English, you want to <laughs> clarify what the heck that means? Well, no. So basically what he's saying is if you are a regulator and you mount spend, up <laughs> there, you go, and you spend, uh, you know, years uh, looking at the cheese industry, we'll go back to cheese. Then when you now have all this knowledge about cheese production, so when you stop being a regulator and move on in your career, where are you going to go to work? 
<laughs> Obviously, that's where your expertise cheese, is. So. And, and, and doesn't it make sense for someone who has worked in cheese for 40 years or something like that to take a job at that bureau that's going to oversee cheese because they have specialized knowledge? Right. So, and, and you don't necessarily have to be actively corrupt to fall victim to this. This is like, this could be mm-hmm. subconscious bias that right. presents itself throughout the whole process. Exactly. Um, so, it's something we kind of got to be on guard for. Now, that is to say nothing of lobbyists who, you know, outright bribe politicians yeah. or make sweetheart deals. Um, I think we all kind of assume that that bribery happens in the lobbying industry. And I personally carry this image of, you know, a guy sitting down at a coffee shop and sliding a briefcase of cash under the table. <laughs> yeah. um, and largely from what I could tell in preparing for this episode, that is exactly what happens. Yeah. Uh, and there are cases abound, although not as many as I'm sure there should be, uh, but for example, Tim Tim Longenmeyer, a Democratic deputy attorney general here in Kentucky, uh, was arrested for taking money to secure government contracts. Now, the FBI wired him up and he went on to film one Jim Sullivan, uh, a lobbyist, paying bribes to secure million dollar government contracts on behalf of his clients. Uh, he handed him $2,500 in an envelope under the table at a Mexican restaurant in <laughs> Frankfurt. That is movie stuff. On right. film. Uh, he met the guy in the parking lot of a Frisch's restaurant, discreetly dropping an envelope filled with $4,000 <laughs> in the driver's side window, which landed on Longenmeyer's lap. The Falcon flies and, and they talked about him having like a hidden camera in his planner that was angled perfectly. They got his face. You know, the yeah. FBI is like, is like stinging this guy. Uh, Longenmeyer actually ended up saying that he donated most of that money to Democratic political campaigns. He got around campaign contribution laws by giving the money to family and friends and having them make the contributions for him. And, and so, so corruption (laughs) absolutely is a part of this. And I think although, you know, though that specific instance, I think it was government contracts, but I think there's no question that at the same time there are lobbying firms the the you know cheese producers of america or the flower growers of america who are slipping money to these regulatory agencies saying hey you know maybe you could soften the way that you're going to apply this one or or you know i th- i think what would be really great is if we had a law that said you can only sell flowers in the state of florida if you already have 17 trucks you know because that's going to help keep out competitors you know there's all sorts of things that they will spend that money for that's right and like i said there are tons of examples of being people being popped for uh for for payoffs and stuff lobbyists um but there aren't anywhere near as much as there should be and and for example i came across this question on quora that i thought was really funny Hmm. um the the person asks why can't lobbyists be charged with bribery and the answer comes because any lobbyist who can fog a mirror should be <laughs> able to figure out a way to bribe a politician and surf past the legal definition of a bribe yeah. and and herein lies the toad cuz we look at uh, for example Bob Menendez which I'm I'm sure lots of you probably have heard of he's a New Jersey democrat who received cash private jet travel and paid for vacations from an ophthalmologist uh, that's Dr. Salomon Melgen. In exchange, Melgen got visa help for several of his mistresses, <laughs> along with a, a policy change at the Department of Health and Human Services for Medicare reimbursement to Dr. Melgen's benefit. He also lobbied the U.S. State Department to assist in awarding a Dominican Republic port security contract worth $500 million to a Melgen-owned corporation. And 
this thing kind of blew up in the news at time. It turned yeah. into a big federal investigation. Well, I mean, blew up in a sense. I mean, you know, <laughs> when, when you said when you said you're sure most people know who Bob Melendez is, I'm like, well, man, probably not. <clears throat> okay, fair yeah. enough. Um, but anyway, the result of this investigation led to uh, the conclusion that it wasn't bribery because these bribes were actually personal gifts. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how do you, you know, how do you say that? I don't, I think, you know, Melgen should have been prosecuted. What ended up happening? The Senate, uh, made him apologize and made him pay back some of the money and said, you're, you're creating a stain on the institution and this is unethical, but not against the law. Yeah, No, it gets (laughs) tough, man. It's like, it's like nailing jello to a wall. Like you, you get into these murky situations and I think, I mean, I think we're safe to pass a law that's just like, you know, if, 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 if we can make it, if we can make a clear cut case, like right here, then I think we can retroactively call that a bribe. Absolutely. Like I, I get what you're saying. Like, you know, well, I can't ever give him a gift. This is a free country. I thought this was America, you know, but <laughs> if, if all that stuff results from it, I think we can retroactively go back and call that a bribe. That's right. Know? And I'd like to point out here that the upper echelons of our government are packed with millionaires. I mean, Congress is is full of millionaires on a hundred and seventy four thousand dollars salary. If they're living <laughs> yeah. around D.C., that that doesn't make them rich. Yeah, one hundred seventy four thousand ain't rich in a senator's lifestyle in D.C. Right. So you know, how are we getting all these millionaires in Congress? Well, there's really no question. Yeah. Uh, payoffs come in the form of speaking gigs, yeah. uh, favors, consulting jobs. You know, after after you're out or while you're in, mm-hmm. um, and and sometimes just envelopes full of cold hard cash <laughs> yeah. that no one ever finds out about. Cause let's be honest, if the FBI is not wiring up your buddy, yeah. those envelopes go completely unnoticed. And, and I'd like to say like, who can forget Bill and Hillary who gave 729 speeches from February, 2001 until May receiving an average payday of $210,795 for each speech. Those, the two, those are some pretty words. <laughs> they also <laughs> reported at least $7.7 million for at least 39 speeches to big banks, including Goldman Sachs and UBS. And, and you can say, you know, a speech is valuable and, and, and you know, our, our members wanted to hear Bill Clinton, so yeah. we'll pay him whatever he's worth. But man, $7.7 million for 39 speeches at an average of two hundred and ten grand per speech, like... That there's something going on there. I don't care yeah. who you are, what celebrity you are. That's just absurd. Well, and and it's not to say that there's not you know plenty of additional evidence for you. you for instance, I mean, look at the revolving door between Capitol Hill and these lobbyist firms. Like, there's no question that there are cozy, very cozy relationships between big business. You know, the lobbying firms themselves who kind of act like the middleman in ways. And the the politicians, and and it's not always politicians. Sometimes it's you know just people, rank and file people who work, you know, civil servants who work at the Capitol, right? You know, uh, for instance, I pulled some numbers. Fifty six percent of the revenue private lobbying groups earned from nineteen ninety eight to two thousand eight was generated by individuals who previously worked for the federal government. Uh, from two thousand one to two thousand eleven. 5,400 former government employees went to work for lobbying firms. (laughs) And uh, in that same time frame, 605 former lobbyists went to work on Capitol Hill. So it it flows both ways. Um, 
Here was the big one, though, for me. From 1998 to 2005, 43 percent of the 198 lawmakers who left Congress, the, the guys who didn't get elected or retired and moved on, uh, registered with the government to lobby. Like, it's just understood that that's what you're going to do. Yeah, it's, it's well, ridiculous. When that happens, you know, when you form that cozy relationship because you know that's where you're going to take a job or you know that that might be a place where you might get a job later on, then, of course, you're willing to bend a rule, change a rule, add a rule. You know, uh, uh, and like I said, help out either, either we're talking about deregulating and, and just letting things run amok or trying to ice, you know, somebody out. Right. Absolutely. And, I, and I'd like to point out real quick, uh, I pulled examples today, not based on political affiliation, but they ended up being Democrats. Yeah. This happens on both sides. I'm definitely not trying to say this uh, only happens to Democrats. It absolutely happens on both sides. I would say the reason people don't know about Bob Melendez is because Trump's president and he's a Democrat, but you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. But speaking of shady Republicans and it happening on both sides, let's talk about the EPA for a second. Okay. All right. I think it's hard to look at what Scott Pruitt has done at the EPA and not see all the hallmarks, uh, hallmarks of regulatory capture. Um, I am one of those people who thinks that the EPA needs a severe overhaul. Absolutely. But I think if you are under the impression that that's what's happening at the EPA right now, you are severely mistaken. 62% of the agency's deregulatory actions com uh, completed by Scott Pruitt in his first year and 85% of its planned initiatives match up with specific industry requests according to a Center for Public Integrity Analysis. Now, should there be some overlap there? Yes, I some. think that's true. There should absolutely, you know, if you're in the industry, best practices and all that stuff, there are some things that you can suggest that have value. 85%? No, man, that's, that's <laughs> wow, boy, the industry is just really on and, top of and things. And at the huh? EPA, nonetheless, because uh, let's make no bones about it, the EPA's primary job should be to protect citizens and protect our environment, right. not protecting companies. And we know for a fact that if the companies are asking for something, their only goal isn't to protect the environment. Their only goal is to make money. Yeah. Yeah. There's no question well, about that. You can make a case like, no, no one's right. spending no $10 point, million dollars on lobbying. That's going to hurt their bottom at line. No point is a corporation's goal to protect the environment. Right. You know, unless um, I, I don't know. Unless they're just like on some, well, place. unless it aligns with their profit motive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But no, it's, it's a question of, how can we give you the rules that you want, but in a cost-effective way? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's the that's best what you've got there. I, I think it's also important to note that in his first six months on the job, Pruitt was scheduled to meet 31 times more often with industry than with environmental or public health groups. And that also comes from the uh, Center for Public Integrity. All, all these numbers were pulled from a Mother Jones article that's going to be in the show notes. And I I highly recommend you guys take a look at the specific examples of what regulations have been rolled back and the case being made for and against. I'm not saying that some of the deregulation that's happening at the EPA is good. I'm just saying, or bad, I'm sorry. But um, but I'm saying when we see what, what's going on here with Scott Pruitt, we have to wonder, and we can't just... Uh, I don't think it's any wonder, man. Yeah. He's not meeting with environmental groups <laughs> whose sole purpose is to protect the environment who have been given money by, uh, I'm assuming... Uh, you know, small donors that, yeah. that believe in the cause, he's icing them out in favor of meeting with industry experts. There's no right. question there what side that's leaning to. There's yeah, none. well, I'm just saying it's not to say that some good can't happen I in agree. the process. I agree. The, the point, again, I, 
to blindly be excited about deregulation is just as stupid to be blindly excited about uh, regulation. Yes. You know, agreed a hundred percent. Look at it and figure it out. Yeah. Uh, So the federal reserve and the 2008 financial crisis, those are kind of episodes under themselves. But I think uh, we just need to take a moment and, and consider, if you will, that the president of the New York Federal Reserve, Timothy Gaithner, directly left that post to become the secretary of the Treasury under Obama in the midst of the 2008 financial crisis. <laughs> yeah. And this is another case of having the guy who knows what's up in charge. So like at, at one level, I want the guy who's familiar with banking uh, to be the secretary of the Treasury. On the other hand, <laughs> I don't really want to tell the fox to guard the hen house. The, the president of the New York Federal Reserve <laughs> in the middle of the financial crisis. Foxes really me, like chicken. I don't give a damn how smart Tim Geithner was, man. That is the biggest middle finger like that. I, I mean, dude, I mean, it was the middle of the financial crisis. You don't like, come on, man. No. Nah. Woof. Um, I, I think probably the most well-documented case in America a regulatory capture is the FAA. Really? Um, I don't the federal know. aviation authority. <laughs> yeah, really? Absolutely, man. Um, if, if you guys have never looked into the FAA, please feel free to go do so. There are countless groups who are actively trying every day to tell you about how awful the FAA is, but here's I've some, never heard of any of them. Here's some highlights. You heard it here first folks <laughs> yeah, right. on the Citizen theory podcast. Um, examples of uh, FAA regulatory capture uh, include a 1985 law on pilot fatigue that the FAA was to revisit in two years, but ultimately didn't look at for the next 25, uh, a lead in aviation gas standard that the FAA was supposed to cooperate with the EPA to put in place in 1970 Uh, which has yet to take effect. Wow. Um, The FAA's 25-year obstruction of a noise reduction plan involving air tours in the Grand Canyon. So basically, you know, people were like, it's gotten to the point where we can't hear ourselves think in the Grand Canyon because of all the air tours. (laughs) And can y'all do something about it? And they passed a law, and the FAA pushed off enforcing it for 25 years. Wow. And I think it's funny that, that you've got two regulatory agencies with the EPA Having setting lead standards, yeah. and then the FAA, you know, thumbing their nose at them. Well, no, no, no. What it, what it would be is uh, law was passed for lead standards, and the FAA and the EPA were supposed to work together, and we <laughs> they were they were supposed to get that done about 1970. You know, uh-huh. so uh, another favorite is the FAA has a long and storied history of punishing whistleblowers. Uh, this includes among a long list of others. An FAA inspector who was fired for having the audacity to uncover, among a litany of other things, a criminal ring that was selling aircraft mechanic licenses to unqualified individuals. Yeah, man. And and they now I want my aircraft mechanic to be licensed, <laughs> authorized, trained, up to date on its certifications. And time and time again, you will find investigators who work for the FAA busting airlines for not doing what they're supposed to or uncovering mechanic license rings or stuff like that. And the FAA fires them and blackballs them. And wow. Yeah, dude, the FAA is dirty as hell, man. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad I know now. What do we do about it? Obviously the Republicans are going to not do anything about it. And the Democrats are not going to do anything about it. Yeah, It's been 25 years. What are we going to do folks? Thing is though, I think most of what we just highlighted uh, was agencies who are not enforcing good regulations that are on the books or they're just attempting to deregulate to hell, right? But what about 
when we get these weird nebulous regulations that are probably should have never been on the books in the first place. Well, so there are all sorts of complicated regulations surrounding car dealerships in America, mm. turns out. Uh, and we've seen this kind of come to light with the Tesla stuff, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, there are some franchise regulations, though, specifically that prohibit manufacturers from terminating franchises with existing dealers unless they prove they have a good cause to do so. They require auto manufacturers to sell new cars through franchise dealers, so no direct sales, and they protect dealers from competition by awarding exclusive territories. See, that's that's the one that gets me like, all right, so you're going to say that you can only have a good reason to terminate uh, you know, a, a relationship with a dealer and that you have to sell cars through a dealer, which I, I have a problem with, but I have heard the opposing argument. Exclusive territories? What is this, the mafia? <laughs> like, what are we doing? Like, Tessio, don't come across my Ford turf. You know what it's I mean? exactly like, what we're doing. Oh, it's yeah. ridiculous, man. And we're going to regulate that? Like, we're going to put that into law. We're going to put that on the yeah, books. Absolutely. Um, so about the regulations that directly prohibit manufacturers from selling direct to consumers, like, I don't really get it. You know, you said you've heard arguments and stuff, and, and yeah. let's talk about it. But the, the first dealership came about in 1898, right? right? And before that, manufacturers did sell direct to consumers. So what exactly led us to this complex array of laws that we're looking at today? I mean, is it an attempt at job creation? Because it, <laughs> it makes sense. If you require dealerships, they got to have salesmen, you know? Right, right. Uh, who passed this stuff? Why that, did it pass? That, that wasn't quite what it was. And and so you're right. We did have our first dealership in like 1898, but we didn't get to the uh, uh, no direct sales point until the 50s. And so at that time, what happened was, um, they were trying to keep mom and pop businesses alive, right? They were trying to keep them from being run out of business by the big scary manufacturer. And the reason was, is because at the time it was actually the more competitive thing to do, hmm. right? Um, let's say we're in 1950s Kenosha, Wisconsin. And now I want you to think about all the car brands that we have right now. You tell me how Toyota Audi, BMW, Mercedes, Ford, Chevrolet, Chrysler, you, you name it. How are they all, the manufacturers, going to have a salesman in that town? Right. So having a mom and pop place was a way to ensure that you had dealers from various So you brands. might have a dealer in Kenosha, uh, and since dealers, uh, since manufacturers rather had to go through a dealer, right. they would link up with that dealer yeah. And get their cars and, in their showroom. Yeah, and, and it's not it's not just the showroom. It's also important to mention that at that point you have a company that is somewhat invested in the community, right? You have, I your thought would be somebody local is running the dealership, right? Well, at that time, if I'm Chrysler and I have a a showroom that sells cars in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and I decide that it's not doing well, and I pull out in 1950. It might be 350 miles to the next place that can work on that car. Right. You know what I mean? Right. So I can also see it benefiting car manu manufacturers in that they don't have to open up dealerships themselves in all these places. Right. So by right. by requiring it, uh, you kind of connect the pipeline to to you know Midtown America uh, all over the country for for the manufacturers as well. So a small car manufacturer. Uh, can actually get his cars in this small dealership that might be previously just owned by Chrysler. Mm -hmm. And Chrysler has every interest in saying, no, we're not going to sell your cars over here. I think, you know, whether those reasons are valid anymore, you know, we're talking about the 1950s and stuff, it's highly, highly debatable. 
Um, you know, the internet has changed the world and all that good stuff, but the current system, uh, may have a few pros. I think, I think we <laughs> should mention that auto warranties are complex and having a dealer to help you navigate. Not only that, but the myriad of paperwork involved in a car purchase. Oh yes. We love dealerships helping us navigate car warranties. I'm just saying that's a pro. I'm just saying that (laughs) whereas I say a person should be able to figure it out for themselves. Traditionally, the idea on the left is that somebody's got to help protect us from the big, bad, regular <laughs> corporate people. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I think also, you know, there there is a, a probably the best argument in a way. I don't know how much it matters at the end of the day. Is that through their service centers, dealerships have a profit incentive to report recall issues that manufacturers will never have. Okay, so there might be a few pros, but honestly, I hate dealerships, and there's a reason people <laughs> call them the stealership. Uh, most of the money is made off of service, uh, you know, trade in ripoffs where they give you a thousand bucks for your trade in and resell Mm -hmm. it for five grand. Um, it's, it's, it's not cool. They make money on financing deals and stuff and they're supposed to be selling cars. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's just, it's weird. And, and we kind of, we, we all hate the dealership, but they're just kind of par for the course. We go, ha I'm going to go on about our day. Yeah. Um, I've got, I've got some, some stats here for you guys. PR Newswire reports that three in five Americans feel like they're being taken advantage of when shopping at a car dealership. 24% of the 35 to 44 demographic would rather get a root canal <laughs> than buy from a dealership. No, it's so <laughs> fun, man. The lot lizards, like the entire experience sucks, man. And, and it's funny, you know, because you'd think a car dealership would be making money off of car sales, but they're not. Uh, it's widely reported that profits off a new car is only like one to two percent. So how are these guys even making money? And if they're not making money selling cars, then why are they required by law to be in existence to sell cars? <laughs> well, they, in fairness, they do make a two to three percent holdback of the sticker price, and that's like money that that the manufacturer will rebate them after the car yeah, sells. Yeah, basically, the manufacturer guarantees them amount of money that you know, even if if you have to drop the price so much to make the sale, you're still going to get this amount of money for selling the car. Right. So when you walk in to buy a car and, and you negotiate them down to the invoice price, and they say, "Hey, buddy, we're almost at a loss here," yeah. uh, the the company's still going to turn around and give them one to two percent, you know, two right. to three percent on the sale of that. But the overwhelming majority of the money that car dealerships make are made on, you know, alarm systems, extended warranties, gap insurance, the service centers, and uh, and financing. Right. And the financing deals is where it all kind of starts to get shysty for me. Um, you know, since they got to make their their profit somewhere, they have to actually sell money. <laughs> That's what yeah. their business is. Uh, they, the profit from finance deals is is about a thousand bucks per car. Oftentimes the sale might net them 200 bucks. Uh, they're borrowing money for their inventory. They pay interest on that borrowed money. They're selling you a car loan that costs the consumer interest. So dealerships aren't making money from cars, but they're still incredibly profitable. Uh, Tom Friedkin, for example, the founder of Gulf States Toyota, which has exclusive rights, I might add, to sell Toyotas in Texas uh, and four other states, is worth $1.7 billion with a B dollars. Uh, and, And to me, like the financing deals, the warranties, et cetera, these are predatory behaviors. Hmm. Um, well, I, I would point out that not everybody in fair, now it's, it's changing when you have things like lending tree now, 
but not everybody can just go to a credit loan and get a and get a loan. And and that's so fine. There but- is something to be said for a dealership, which prior to recently with Lending Tree and stuff had the ability to talk to banks across the nation and perhaps get you a better deal. Often they don't. That's true. I'm playing devil's advocate. No, no, no. But, saying, but I think you're right. No. When I was researching it, I did find there are plenty of instances where a car dealership will get you a better deal on your loan than right. your bank would or your credit union would. So, right. you know, that's all fine and dandy. Um, but, but to me, financiers should finance, mechanics should service, mm-hmm. and, and car dealerships should should sell cars to me yeah. the this dealership thing is a relic of the past and they're useless and and blood-sucking middlemen yeah well i don't i don't think here's the thing like i don't think that we necessarily have to live in a world where they don't exist i think the problem is that we live in a world where they're mandated where to they're exist, forced to exist right so i think you know part of my you know, right wing bent and and belief in the market is that there should be choice. There should be as much choices as possible. And, you know, that is a choice whether to buy directly. I can see all kinds of places where buying directly from a manufacturer may be inconvenient to me. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like, oh, you want to go check it out. You want to feel the trim and right? roll the windows up and down and feel the seat as it leans back. Absolutely. See and where the buttons are. You do have to look at our manufacturers going to offer the same kind of warranties that we're getting with the extended warranties from the dealership. Now, granted, those extended warranties might have all kinds of loopholes and clauses that, but sometimes to some they extent, do. yeah, yeah. But to some extent, they're still somewhat helpful, and are the manufacturers still going to present that? Right. But but that's not the question. The question isn't, is this better than that? The but we question can have is, both. who gets to choose? Yeah. And the regulators here have taken that choice from us. They have it. And Tesla is very much challenging uh, the regulators here. Tesla is trying to move to a direct sales model where, where customers buy directly from, from Tesla, and they avoid the dealerships altogether. And and they're doing this uh, because they say that as a new car company with a new type of car, dealerships won't sell them properly. They don't know about the benefits of Tesla, uh, you know, enough to sell them on a car that may be fifteen thousand dollars more expensive than the Camry. Right. Um, you know, they they don't trust the dealerships to explain the technology, mm-hmm. um, et cetera, et cetera. They, in fact, they're set up completely different than a lot of a lot of auto manufacturers. You know, they're, right. the, the whole system for manufacturing and delivering, et cetera, et cetera. So, so Tesla is in the process of challenging these laws um, that kind of insulate dealerships all over the country, and in some cases they're winning, yeah, and in other cases they're losing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I again, I think Tesla's spot on. I mean, it, it again, it doesn't matter if the dealerships think that they can do just as good a job at selling Tesla cars as Tesla can. Tesla doesn't think so. And so why are we going to force them? And again, I want to go back to the territory thing. You know, you brought up, uh, what was the guy's name? Tom Friedkin or whatever. Yeah. Um, I, you know, the fact that he's got $1.7 billion, like in and of itself, it, it doesn't bother me. If he made that money, uh, on, on selling extra windshield wipers or whatever the hell he made it on, that doesn't necessarily bother me. What bothers me is, is that Tom Friedkin is the car sultan of Texas. And four other states. The, the, yeah, and four other states. <laughs> so, like, cars have to go through Tom Friedkin. If he can make a billion dollars without having having been given a territory, that's fine. But he has a territory. We have carved up the United States and said, Tom, this is your kingdom. Go <laughs> forth and right. prosper. And we don't, we don't do that here, man. That's yeah. not what our country does. I think there's there's also a balancing act we have to consider here, too. 
Um, so if we do go ahead and decide to get rid of these these dealership regulations, um, it's going to have an impact on jobs. Dealerships are going to close down. I'm sure some will remain. Some will figure out how to stay profitable. Right. But overwhelmingly, there will be less car salesmen. So it's something yeah. we have to consider. Um, and according to an NADA report from 2016, there were 16,708 car dealerships in the U.S., uh, but there are also, that's that's franchised car dealers. There are also more than 20,000 independent dealerships, which are typically like used car lots. Um, so as of that report, there was a rough total of 36,700 car dealerships. Uh, and that like that number is likely to be a lot higher now. So you have to imagine a typical dealership probably employs quite a few people. And if we're going to move to direct sales, we got to consider the impact on employment. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think ultimately, though, what happens is, the manufacturers just absorb the dealerships. Like I, I don't, I, you'll lose some jobs. It will, you know, as the internet option becomes available, of course, some people will use it and it will, there will be an impact, but I don't think we're going to like wholesale see as much as I would like for it to happen. Wholesale see car salesmen disappear off the face of the earth. <laughs> and I'm not saying that you guys aren't lovely people like at home drinking and stuff, but I'm just saying like professionally, man, screw you. Guys. So <laughs> and I guess you also have to consider if, if, dealerships in small towns and stuff uh, are their primary vector for for servicing vehicles Mm -hmm. you'll see small mechanic shops spring up that'll that'll take that load happily yeah no that's something that i'd be excited about is seeing the the mechanic shops return i would too because i hate man if you've ever taken your car into the dealership for something it's like three hundred dollars and then another eight hundred dollars for nothing There's just a line item like $800 for nothing because they have no competition. You know what I mean? I mean, you, you got to go through them. Um, I think, I think our next issue is one that really like boggles the mind a bit because it's it's a tough question, right? And that's the regulation around truck driving. I think in the abstract, we all think that it's a wonderful idea because everybody has heard stories or, you know, seen old movies about truck drivers, like just pushing through for like two or three days, got to make it snorting th- cocaine, yeah. injecting meth, drinking eight <laughs> coffees, exactly a handful of five hour energies. That's right. You got to get to Texarkana, man. But, uh, I think what's happened is we, we came out and we said, okay, we're going to regulate this so that our roads are safer. Cause we don't need these guys driving around like maniacs. I agree. And, but nobody understands like where we're at. With that, like where that got left laying while we all moved on to the next thing. So uh, here is a piece uh, that was written by a dude named Matthew Garnett, who is a truck driver. And it's an essay that he wrote for the Federalist where he attempts to kind of shed light on the state of trucker regulation. Okay. He says, in addition to the real world clock, a driver has four other clocks to worry about. The eight hour break clock, his 14 hour on duty, not driving clock, the 11 hour on duty driving clock. And the 70-hour weekly on-duty clock. What? (laughs) Yeah, exactly, man. Uh, He tries to clarify it for us. The Federal Motor Carrier Administration requires drivers to log everything they do, where they did it, the duration of the task, and when the specific tasks were done. I'm okay with that. The biggest principle to keep in mind is that when any one of the clocks runs out, you can no longer drive legally. Once you start the clock by going on duty, you have eight hours before you must stop driving and take a 30-minute break. Okay. Also, once you start your clock, you have now started a nonstop 14-hour window in which you must get all the driving done that you need to get done for that day. What? If you get stuck at a shipper for three hours, you now only have 10 hours to drive. Which happens all the time. And it also brings us to your 11-hour clock. 
In any given 14-hour on-duty period, you are only allowed to drive legally for 11 hours within that 14-hour period. In addition, in any eight-day period, you are only allowed to be on duty, not driving and driving, for a total of 70 hours. And that's your 70-hour Oof. Yeah, so it basically it gets these guys to the point where their heads start to spin. And then we've done things to kind of help them keep up with it. Uh, they, they've instituted like some computer programs that'll yep. tell them when to drive and when not to drive. Uh, only if your trucking company can afford the computer program, I might add. That's true. And not to mention a lot of truck drivers are independent contractors. And Many. I don't think that the company has to provide that computer. So, I mean, that would, you know. Yeah, they're point, over their manual logbooks in a lot right, of cases. Right. Um, but, you know, Mr. Garnett goes on to note that even if we get the clock situation, even when we get to a point where we understand the clock situation, it still creates problems. Um, he noted that when you're in off duty mode, the government still regulates what you can and can't do. And for instance, him writing this article for the Federalist is a violation because he was in off duty mode and, <laughs> and that's he's not supposed to be doing it. Right. So, right. He called it like a leisure activity, yeah, right? He said, he said, I just want to tell my bosses that I consider writing a leisure activity because since he was doing something that he might get paid for, he was no longer in off, you know, that's working during off duty. mode. Yeah. And, and that's crazy to me because, you know, not to mention he might not have had good sleep the night before. Oh yeah. Maybe he takes a nap during that three hour period where he's waiting for the shipment to be unloaded. You know what I'm saying? Like this is ignoring all kinds of nuance and, and gray area that, that very much people can, I hope manage on their own. I mean, I want to stop people from, from driving tired. Yeah. Uh, I don't want a semi running off the road. You know, I'm terrified well, when I, he, enough when I drive by semis on the highway at 80 miles an hour in the rain uh, with my own bottles of five hour energy in my hands that <laughs> yeah. I'm chugging as I'm desperately trying to get to Florida before 11 o'clock at night for the check into the hotel with three screaming kids in the back. Anyway, <laughs> that got way too real, way too quick. It did get off a real, <laughs> but no, ideally if he's driving around, he shouldn't feel pressured if he needs to take a nap. But here's the thing. Like there is a point where like, if he shuts down and takes a nap, he's killed his 14 hour window. Right. And he's so not now, making any money. That means he's got to wait a day before and he his boss is mad at him. Cause yeah. the load's going to be late, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. I thought, you know, another thing that this guy in particular said, he said, you know, I'm good at my job. I'm actually, you know, he says self-evaluation. I'm considered an elite truck driver because of how well I manage the clocks. He's like, but I'm telling you right now, the only way I do it, is by rushing. And he's like, and when we're talking about, like you said, an 80 foot, 80,000 pound truck, you probably don't want me to rush when I'm checking (laughs) over the load. So I think we did get to a point where we got too far into these guys' lives. And I think it speaks to maybe the broader point. Like we, we obviously, we needed something, right? Like the roads were unsafe. But when we started regulating, we got carried away. It's almost, you can see the guy in his office at the, at the, federal motor carrier administration. He's like, okay, in a perfect world, he'll be able to drive for 14 hours on Tuesday <laughs> and he'll be able to drive 14 hours on Wednesday. And, and, but if he does that, that's too much. And so we got to make a rule about this and we should regulate that. And we should, and it, he just gets carried away. There's no way for someone sitting in an office that far away to be able to foresee all those little hidden scenarios. And, and what if the dude gets sleepy during the day? What if he got a bad night's rest? What if a cat was screaming outside the truck cab all night? You know, Right, right. And, and that's the danger of regulation to me. But at least Mr. Garnett can say that he's allowed to go to work, right? Because <laughs> in some cases, regulators won't even let you go to work. 
That's right. And as everyone knows, you got to be handy with the steel in order to earn your keep. <laughs> and, uh. and who gets in the way of that? That would be occupational licensing boards who decide what occupations uh, are licensed and how. So uh, board members will typically consist of existing practitioners of a given occupation. So dentists would be sitting on the dental licensing board, cosmetologists on the cosmetology licensing board, so on and so forth. Now, they and they generally meet on clear black nights right? <laughs> when there's a clear white moon. Uh, yeah. So talk about the fox watching the hen house. I mean, there's there's almost no oversight when it comes to the decisions these boards make and not to mention occupational licenses aren't usually transferable across state lines. So you're talking about a huge impediment to worker mobility. Uh, if I get licensed as a cosmetologist in Kentucky and I want to move to Missouri, uh, chances are you're going to have to get relicensed in Missouri. And, and, and why? Uh, I mean, I get it. It makes sense to require training in licensing for some occupations. You know, I don't want my aircraft man mechanic to be unlicensed yeah, that's true. Know, when I'm getting on a plane. And I understand that some states might have looser requirements. So California might be really strict on airplane mechanics and, you know, an airplane mechanic coming from Tennessee with really loose licensing requirements. Mm -hmm. Maybe they need to be retrained in California to adhere to California's standards. You know, I, I do get that, but there are some really ridiculous license requirements out there that honestly have me scratching my head at how we even got them in the first place and why. So there are currently nine states which require a license before someone's allowed to sell caskets for a living. <laughs> in fact, you're not even allowed to close a casket without paying a fee and asking the government for permission first. Well, man, I mean, it's just like, it's just like the airline mechanics. Think about the risk <laughs> to the customer. If their casket isn't sound <laughs> or isn't closed properly, you might kill them. <laughs> oh uh, boy, you might yeah. actually kill me. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, it's it's no joke though. You know, I, I read about a, a Texas law where some uh, some of the guys working in IT have to go through a three year process to get private investigator licenses because they might come across somebody's emails in the course of their job. That's you crazy know? to me. Um and. and the list just keeps going on and on. I have to share these guys with you because they're, they're, they're so ridiculous. Uh, though only three states in the District of Columbia actually require a license to decorate professionally, <laughs> this sector is heavily regulated. Oh, yeah. Those seeking a career in this field must undergo six years of education and apprenticeships before they can take the exam and obtain their license. In D.C., this license going to cost you nine hundred and twenty five dollars. Well, you don't you don't want just anybody throwing up curtains, man. I mean, oh, that shut it. Shade of taupe's not good with your with your couch. <laughs> what? Uh, you can go to any drugstore and you will find an entire aisle dedicated to do it yourself. Teeth whitening products. Meanwhile, you know, consumers are allowed to whiten their own teeth all day, but orthodontists have to be licensed to perform just about every other service you can imagine when it comes to your pearly whites except whiten them. Uh, this requires a completely separate and costly license. So it's, it's, it's not just that people are allowed to whiten their own teeth. It's that orthodontists who are, are already, already certified to do to all this other stuff have to get a special license to whiten people's teeth. And if that's not enough, Massachusetts, actually, I, I bodied that one. Massachusetts yeah. actually requires fortune tellers to be licensed before they're allowed to receive compensation 
for their services. That's all right, though. They knew that was coming. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on a roll, baby. Uh, what we got here? Tennessee requires 300 hours of training before someone can be compensated for washing hair in a salon. Lather, rinse, oh my repeat. God, man. Lather, rinse, <laughs> repeat. How many hours of training does that take? I don't know. Yeah, and no, the world of cosmetology is especially just like beset by stupid occupational licenses. That's right. In fact, in Minnesota, more classroom time is required to become a cosmetologist than to become a lawyer. No, that's a good plan. Becoming a manicurist takes double the number of hours of instruction as a paramedic. <laughs> what? According to beautyschools.com, there are only 10 states that do not require a license to braid hair. Illinois actually requires 300 hours of training just to put braids in. Now, now, oh, my God. What is going on really in the quick. world of occupational <laughs> licensing? Really quick. I do not want to give the impression that we don't think that people who braid hair or do cosmetology are doing, you know, hard work, skilled work. Yeah. You know, absolutely. 100%. It's just not dangerous. Um, There's no risk of failure. Well, braiding someone's hair. The stakes are a touch different than a paramedic. Yes. <laughs> I mean, they're a touch different. I, I can't believe it, man. And there's an argument to be made there that uh, that that they are straight up just keeping poor folks out of meaningful work. I mean, yeah. you know, nine hundred dollars for a license may not seem high to become a professional decorator. But there's a poor kid out there who knows exactly the color to match your couches. Yeah. And, you know, he doesn't have nine bucks for the license. So, eh, just screw him. Yeah. You know, no. oh, go get a loan, pay some interest. You know, I don't know, man. It's just. And, it's, and the, the worst part is that oftentimes, like, especially with like the, you know, the hair braiding and, and some of these other things, the people who are pushing for these occupational licenses are the people who are already established in the work because they know damn well that it's going to raise the barrier of entry for that's new right. businesses. So talk about regulatory capture. Yeah, that's right? exactly the foxes what are is. again watching the in-house. And of course, the cosmetologists don't want people to come up and compete with their existing businesses. Exactly. It's ludicrous. Uh it's also it's a huge tool of revenue for the state. Mm -hmm. Um you know, it's just it's just picking their pockets basically. Yeah. Uh especially with things like casket sales or or yeah. being a florist in some cases. Or uh how about lemonade stands? Oh my god, let's not talk about <laughs> lemonade stands. I could do a whole freaking episode ranting about how stupid it is that we're keeping kids from selling lemonade in their front yards. Who yeah, who writes this stuff? How do they yeah. get away with it? I mean, we've all heard the tales and 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 you know, maybe it's just it's just a lemonade stand. It's not a lemonade. It is not just a lemonade stand. That is a symbol of of tried and true American freedoms getting trampled on. Well, to me, the lemonade stand is huge. You don't want somebody to get sick, though, do you? Oh, my God. <laughs> From the lemonade. Oh, my. Yeah, I guess uh, we should have food inspectors come and inspect their booths, yeah. too. Nah, man, if it looks scuzzy, don't drink the lemonade. Yeah, let's get them on that food handler's permit, too. You know, oh, give me a break, man. <laughs> Look, Morris Kleiner, economics professor at University of Minnesota's Center for Human Resources and Labor Studies, asserted that with growth of licensing laws has come a national patchwork of stealth regulation that has, among other things, restricted labor markets, innovation, and worker mobility. Kleiner further asserted that licensing resulted in 2.85 million fewer jobs nationally, 
with an annual cost to consumers of $203 billion. And I don't know how he came up with that number. Yeah. You know, there's probably some flaws with that, but sh- cut it in half. Yeah. yeah. hundred. Cut it in quarters. Yeah. Cut it in 25ths. I don't care. Like, that's too much money. You know what I'm saying? It's 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 ridiculous. No, it is. And and again, that one, uh, you know, with along with the long list of other things we say, you know, actually in the uh, uh, the truck driver, he cited that keeping up with those logs and clocks that made it harder for you know he was thinking about starting his own truck driver company and he was like I don't know man I don't know if I want to a subject myself to these fines and yeah. and b have to you know get that computer system and manage all this stuff. So time and time again, the thread that runs through here is who are these regulations or these deregulations? Who are they benefiting? Well, not us. And that's that's an interesting point, because if we go back to the dichotomy here of of Republicans and Democrats with Democrats leaning pro-regulation and and Republicans leaning anti-regulation, I think if you look at either of these two parties implementing policies, they're always benefiting the rich. Every right. time, you know, like we talked about who's, who's involved in, in the lobbying, you know, yeah. it's, it, it's on behalf of the companies, mm-hmm. um, you know, who's involved every step of the way with these boards, the licensing boards, they are people incumbents protecting their existing wealth every yeah. time, whether you're talking about regulation or deregulation. Mm-hmm. So this is one of those areas that I feel like we're being pitted against each other when, Really, we're all, if we take a look at these, if we take a look at the nuance and we understand the complexities, we're all somewhere in the middle. Yeah. yeah. At least we should be. I think yeah. we are. I don't think anyone I, can listen to this episode and not be somewhere in I the think, middle. I think it's important to note that because I think that's, for me, what one of the main drivers here is, is that you're right. This is a tool that's it's being used against us and it's, and it's benefiting the rich. But I think like... The reason that we have made it such a a uh, potent tool is the fact that that team sports thing that we always talk about most certainly c- carries over into this. It again, some people it does not matter what the regulation is. Was something regulated? Hell yeah, that's a win for my side. And, and the same thing happens on the right. Was something deregulated? Hell yeah, that's a, that's a win for our side. And so that has enabled us to pass any manner of horrible, awful things. Regulation or deregulation. And just tell you, hey, you know what? We got to pass these laws because if not, truck drivers are going to kill you in your sleep with tainted lemonade, and then they're going to sell you a shitty casket. You know what I mean? So we got to have these laws, man, or else you're in danger. And over here, the Republicans are telling us, hey, man, all these laws, that's the reason you're poor, dude. We got to get rid of all of them. If we tear down all these laws and regulations, everybody's just going to be walking around like the Monopoly man next week. And and we buy it. We yeah. buy it. We buy into it wholesale, man. Yeah, we got to stop. And uh, we've also got to stop this episode. I want to thank you guys for listening uh, and following along. We love you guys. Uh, there are increasingly more and more of you every week. So we must do so. We must be doing something right uh, hopefully you guys are sharing us on social media, telling your friends about us, etc. Um, and now comes the point in the show where producer extraordinaire Beanzo is going to find all of the ways we messed up today, and he's going to smack us right in the face with them. Uh, Beanzo, what you got for us today? Sense and theory. I don't know if you've ever let me down as much as you did today. Well, maybe the Bigfoot episode. But you fellas are flat out wrong here.
Regulations are a vital and necessary part of life that protects citizens of all walks every day. Imagine what good could be done if there was an occupational license for podcasters that made you two think twice before you started this show. Or consider how much more inclined you fellows would be to correctly pronounce Bob Menendez or Timothy Geithner's names if there was a name failure tax. Speaking of failure taxes, I should probably get a hold of a CPA so I can sell these mics when the show goes out of business. Let's see, what's 0.2% of 200 bucks? Ah, who am I kidding? You'd have to actually be in business first. Anyway, some of the highlights for me today was Theory dry snitching on his grandma, failing to mention that the FAA finally got around to that lead in the fuel plan back in 2012. They say they'll meet the standard that was set in 1970, in the year 2023. Good job, FAA. Keep us flying high. You fellas also failed to mention that Scott Pruitt, Trump's former chief of the EPA, had a $43,000 soundproof phone booth installed at his office so he could have those super secret conversations with Greenpeace, you know, about protecting the environment. And I think we all know why you boys didn't say anything about it, but OSHA regulations clearly state the business must cover work expenses related to safety and well-being. Soundproof booth and a written transcript is really the only humane way a person could go about doing my job. So, shady business owners trying to flout federal regulation, back to you. Ah, but you said that we weren't a business and we'd have to be a business first for those rules to apply. Theory, man, so that's, that's not really worth it. Dude. Well, I'm not, I'm not paying for this damn booth. Anyway, uh, I figured this was a good time to bring it up. I've been off Twitter for about a week and a half or so. And I was just wondering, man, has uh, has Tay-Tay hit us back yet? You, you were serious about that? Yeah, has she hit us back? No. Hey folks, I'm Sense, one half of the Sense and Theory podcast. I'd like to take a second to thank you for listening. Uh, It's your time and attention that makes this show worthwhile. Uh, We do the show for you and our listeners. Um, I'd ask you to leave a review, good or bad, on iTunes. Uh, Come check us out on the various social media channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can find the links uh, in the description to the show. And uh, if you want to reach out with a comment, uh, joke, uh, funny anecdote, uh, you want to call me an idiot, uh, senseandtheorypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, Thanks again, folks, and we'll see you next week.